This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 14. The Venerable Cathedral of Notre Dame. Jean Sanspeur's Edition. Treasures and Sacred Relics. The Legend of the Cross. The Morgue. The Outrageous Cancan. Blondin Aflame. The Louvre Palace. The Great Park. Showy Pageantry. Preservation of Noted Things. We went to see the Cathedral of Notre Dame. We had heard of it before. It surprises me sometimes to think how much we do know and how intelligent we are. We recognized the brown old Gothic pile in a moment. It was like the pictures. We stood at a little distance, and changed from one point of observation to another, and gazed long at its lofty square towers and its rich front, clustered thick with stony mutilated saints, who had been looking calmly down from their perches for ages. The Patriarch of Jerusalem stood under them in the old days of chivalry and romance, and preached the Third Crusade, more than six hundred years ago, and since that day they have stood there and looked quietly down upon the most thrilling scenes, the grandest pageants, the most extraordinary spectacles that have been grieved or delighted Paris. These battered and broken-nosed old fellows saw many and many a cavalcade of mail-clad knights come marching home from Holy Land. They heard the bells above them toll the signal for the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, and they saw the slaughter that followed. Later they saw the reign of terror, the carnage of the revolution, the overthrow of a king, the coronation of two Napoleons, the christening of the young prince that lords it over a regiment of servants in the Tuileries to-day, and they may possibly continue to stand there until they see the Napoleon dynasty swept away, and the banners of a great republic floating above its ruins. I wish these old parties could speak. They could tell a tale worth the listening to. They say that a pagan temple stood where Notre-Dame now stands, in the old Roman days, eighteen or twenty centuries ago. Remains of it are still preserved in Paris, and that a Christian church took its place about A.D. 300, another took the place of that in A.D. 500, and that the foundations of the present cathedral were laid about A.D. 1100. The ground ought to be measurably sacred by this time, one would think. One portion of this noble old edifice is suggestive of the quaint fashions of ancient times. It was built by Jean Sans-Peur, Duke of Burgundy, to set his conscience at rest. He had assassinated the Duke of Orléans. Alas, those good old times are gone when a murderer could wipe the stain from his name and soothe his troubles to sleep, simply by getting out his bricks and mortar and building an addition to a church. The portals of the great western front are bisected by square pillars. They took the central one away in 1852, on the occasion of thanksgivings, for the reinstitution of the presidential power, but precious soon they had occasion to reconsider that motion, and put it back again. And they did. We loitered through the grand aisles for an hour or two, staring up at the rich stained-glass windows embellished with blue and yellow and crimson saints and martyrs and trying to admire the numberless great pictures in the chapels, and then we were admitted to the sacristy, and shown the magnificent robes which the Pope wore when he crowned Napoleon I. 
a wagon-load of solid gold and silver utensils used in the great public processions and ceremonies of the church, some nails of the true cross, a fragment of the cross itself, a part of the crown of thorns. We had already seen a large piece of the true cross in a church in the Azores, but no nails. They showed us likewise the bloody robe which that archbishop of Paris wore, who exposed his sacred person and braved the wrath of the insurgents of 1848 to mount the barricades and hold aloft the olive branch of peace in the hope of stopping the slaughter. His noble effort cost him his life. He was shot dead. They showed us a cast of his face taken after death, the bullet that killed him, and the two vertebrae in which it lodged. These people have a somewhat singular taste in the matter of relics. Ferguson told us that the silver cross which the good archbishop wore at his girdle was seized and thrown into the Seine, where it lay embedded in the mud for fifteen years, and then an angel appeared to a priest and told him where to die for it. He did die for it and got it, and now it is there on exhibition at Notre Dame, to be inspected by anybody who feels an interest in inanimate objects of miraculous intervention. Next we went to visit the morgue, that horrible receptacle for the dead, who die mysteriously and leave the manner of their taking off a dismal secret. We stood before a grating and looked through into a room which was hung all about with the clothing of dead men, coarse blouses, water-soaked, the delicate garments of women and children, patrician vestments, hacked and stabbed and stained with red, a hat that was crushed and bloody. On a slanting stone lay a drowned man, naked, swollen, purple, clasping the fragment of a broken bush with a grip which death had so petrified that human strength could not unloose it, mute witness of the last despairing effort to save the life that was doomed beyond all help. A stream of water trickled ceaselessly over the hideous face. We knew that the body and the clothing were there for identification by friends but still we wondered if anybody could love that repulsive object or grieve for its loss. We grew meditative, and wondered if, some forty years ago, when the mother of that ghastly thing was dandling it upon her knee, and kissing it, and petting it, and displaying it with satisfied pride to the passer-by, a prophetic vision of this dread ending ever flitted through her brain. I half feared that the mother, or the wife, or a brother of the dead man might come while we stood there but nothing of the kind occurred. Men and women came, and some looked eagerly in and pressed their faces against the bars. Others glanced carelessly at the body and turned away with a disappointed look. People, I thought, who live upon strong excitement and who attend the exhibitions of the morgue regularly, just as other people go to see theatrical spectacles every night, when one of these looked in and passed on, I could not help thinking. Now, this don't afford you any satisfaction. A party with his head shot off is what you need. One night we went to the celebrated Jardin Mabille, but only stayed a little while. We wanted to see some of this kind of Paris life, however, and therefore the next night we went to a similar place of entertainment, in a great garden in the suburb of Asnières. We went to the railroad depot, toward evening, and Ferguson got tickets for a second-class carriage. Such a perfect jam of people I have not often seen, but there was no noise, no disorder, no rowdyism. Some of the women and young girls that entered the train we knew to be of the demi-monde, but others we were not at all sure about. The girls and women in our carriage behaved themselves modestly and becomingly all the way out, except that they smoked. 
When we arrived at the garden in Asnières, we paid a franc or two admission, and entered a place which had flower-beds in it, and grass-plots, and long curving rows of ornamental shrubbery, with here and there a secluded bower convenient for eating ice-cream in. We moved along the sinuous gravel-walks with the great concourse of girls and young men, and suddenly a domed and filigreed white temple, starred over and over and over again with brilliant gas-jets, burst upon us like a fallen sun. Nearby was a large, handsome house with its ample front illuminated in the same way, and above its roof floated the star-spangled banner of America. Well, I said, how is this? It nearly took my breath away. Ferguson said an American, a New Yorker, kept the place, and was carrying on quite a stirring opposition to the Jardin Mabille. Crowds composed of both sexes and nearly all ages were frisking about the garden or sitting in the open air in front of the flagstaff and temple, drinking wine and coffee or smoking. The dancing had not begun yet. Ferguson said there was to be an exhibition. The famous Blondin was going to perform on a tightrope in another part of the garden. We went thither. Here the light was dim, and the masses of people were pretty closely packed together. And now I made a mistake which any donkey might make, but a sensible man never. I committed an error which I find myself repeating every day of my life. Standing right before a young lady, I said, "'Dan, just look at this girl, how beautiful she is!' "'I thank you more for the evident sincerity of the compliment, sir, than for the extraordinary publicity you have given to it.' this in a good, pure English. We took a walk, but my spirits were very, very sadly dampened. I did not feel right comfortable for some time afterward. Why will people be so stupid as to suppose themselves the only foreigners among a crowd of ten thousand persons? But Blondin came out shortly. He appeared on a stretched cable, far away above the sea of tossing hats and handkerchiefs, and in the glare of the hundreds of rockets that whizzed heavenward by him, he looked like a wee insect. He balanced his pole and walked the length of his rope two or three hundred feet. He came back and got a man and carried him across. He returned to the center and danced a jig. Next he performed some gymnastic and balancing feats too perilous to afford a pleasant spectacle, and he finished by fastening to his person a thousand Roman candles. Catherine wheels, serpents and rockets of all manner of brilliant colors, setting them on fire all at once, and walking and waltzing across his rope again, in a blinding blaze of glory that lit up the garden and the people's faces like a great conflagration at midnight. The dance had begun, and we adjourned to the temple. Within it was a drinking saloon, and all around it was a broad circular platform for the dancers. I backed up against the wall of the temple and waited. Twenty sets formed. The music struck up, and then I placed my hands before my face for very shame. But I looked through my fingers. They were dancing the renowned Can-Can. A handsome girl in the set, before me, tripped forward lightly to meet the opposite gentleman, tripped back again, grasped her dresses vigorously on both sides with her hands, raised them pretty high danced an extraordinary jig that had more activity and exposure about it than any jig I ever saw before, and then, drawing her clothes still higher, she advanced gaily to the center and launched a vicious kick full at her vis-a-vis. -vis. must have infallibly have removed his nose if he had been seven feet high. It was a mercy he was only six. That is the can-can. 
The idea of it is to dance as wildly, as noisily, as furiously as you can, expose yourself as much as possible if you are a woman, and kick as high as you can, no matter which sex you belong to. There is no word of exaggeration in this. Any of the staid, respectable, aged people who were there that night can testify to the truth of that statement. There were a good many such people present. I suppose French morality is not of that straight-laced description which is shocked at trifles. I moved aside and took a general view of the can-can. Shouts, laughter, furious music, a bewildering chaos of darting and intermingling forms, stormy jerking and snatching of gay dresses, bobbing beads, flying arms, lightning flashes of white-stockinged calves and dainty slippers in the air, and then a grand final rush, riot, a terrific hubbub, and a wild stampede. Heavens! Nothing like it has been seen on earth since trembling Tam O'Shanter saw the devil and the witches at their orgies that stormy night in Alloway's old haunted kirk. We visited the Louvre, at a time when we had no silk purchases in view, and looked at its miles of paintings by the old masters. Some of them were beautiful, but at the same time they carried such evidences about them of the cringing spirit of those great men, that we found small pleasure in examining them. Their nauseous adulation of princely patrons was more prominent to me, and chained my attention more surely than the charms of color and expression which are claimed to be in the pictures. Gratitude for kindnesses is well but it seems to me that some of those artists carried it so far that it ceased to be gratitude and became worship. If there is a plausible excuse for the worship of men, then by all means let us forgive Rubens and his brethren. But I will drop the subject, lest I say something about the old masters that might as well be left unsaid. Of course we drove in the Bois de Boulogne, that limitless park with its forests, its lakes, its cascades, and its broad avenues. There were thousands upon thousands of vehicles abroad, and the scene was full of life and gaiety. There were very common hacks, with father and mother and all the children in them, conspicuous little open carriages with celebrated ladies of questionable reputation in them. There were dukes and duchesses abroad, with gorgeous footmen perched behind, and equally gorgeous outriders perched on each of the six horses. There were blue and silver and green and gold and pink and black and all sorts of descriptions of stunning and startling liveries about, and I almost yearned to be a flunky myself for the sake of the fine clothes. But presently the Emperor came along, and he outshone them all. He was preceded by a bodyguard of gentlemen on horseback in showy uniforms. His carriage-horses—there appeared to be somewhere in the remote neighborhood of a thousand of them— were bestridden by gallant-looking fellows, also in stylish uniforms, and after the carriage followed another detachment of bodyguards. Everybody got out of the way. Everybody bowed to the Emperor and his friend the Sultan, and they went by on a swinging trot and disappeared. I will not describe the Bois de Boulogne. I cannot do it. It is simply a beautiful, cultivated, endless, wonderful wilderness. It is an enchanting place. It is in Paris now, one may say, but a crumbling old cross in one portion of it reminds one that it was not always so. The cross marks the spot where a celebrated troubadour was waylaid and murdered in the fourteenth century. It was in this park that that fellow, with an unpronounceable name, made the attempt upon the Russian Tsar's life last spring with a pistol. The bullet struck a tree. 
Ferguson showed us the place. Now, in America, that interesting tree would be chopped down or forgotten within the next five years. But it will be treasured here. The guides will point it out to visitors for the next eight hundred years. And when it decays and falls down, they will put up another there, and go on with the same old story just the same. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 French National Burying Ground Among the Great Dead the Shrine of Disappointed Love, the story of Abelard and Eloise, English spoken here, American drinks compounded here, Imperial honors to an American, the overestimated Grisette, departure from Paris, a deliberate opinion concerning the comeliness of American women. One of our pleasantest visits was to Père Lachaise, the national burying-ground of France, the honored resting-place of some of her greatest and best children, the last home of scores of illustrious men and women, who were born to no titles, but achieved fame by their own energy and their own genius. It is a solemn city of winding streets of miniature marble temples and mansions of the dead, gleaming white from out of wilderness of foliage and fresh flowers. Not every city is so well peopled as this, or has so ample an area within its walls. Few palaces exist in any city, that are so exquisite in design, so rich in art, so costly in material, so graceful, so beautiful. We had stood in the ancient church of Saint-Denis, where the marble effigies of thirty generations of kings and queens lay stretched at length upon the tombs, and the sensations invoked were startling and novel. The curious armor, the obsolete costumes, the placid faces, the hands placed palm to palm in eloquent supplication. It was a vision of gray antiquity. It seemed curious enough to be standing face to face, as it were, with old Dagobert I, and Clovis, and Charlemagne, those vague, colossal heroes, those shadows, those myths of a thousand years ago. I touched their dust-covered faces with my finger. But Dagobert was deader than sixteen centuries that have passed over him. Clovis slept well after his labor for Christ, and old Charlemagne went on dreaming of his paladins of bloody Roncesvalles, and gave no heed to me. The great names of Père Lachaise impress one, too, but differently. There the suggestion brought constantly to his mind is that this place is sacred to a nobler royalty, the royalty of heart and brain. Every faculty of mind, every noble trait of human nature, every high occupation which men engage in, seems represented by a famous name. The effect is a curious medley. Davoust and Massena, who wrought in many a battle tragedy, are here, and so also is Rochelle, of equal renown in mimic tragedy on the stage. The Abbe Sicard sleeps here, the first great teacher of the deaf and dumb, a man whose heart went out to every unfortunate, and whose life was given to kindly offices in their service. And not far off, in a repose and peace at last, lies Marshal Ney, whose stormy spirit knew no music like the bugle-call to arms. The man who originated public gaslighting, and that other benefactor who introduced the cultivation of the potato, and thus blessed millions of his starving countrymen, lie with the Prince of Maserano, and with exiled queens and princes of further India. Guy Lussac, the chemist, Laplace, the astronomer, Larray, the surgeon, De Zeus, the advocate, are here, and with them are Talma, Bellini, Rubini, 
de Balzac, Beaumarchais, Béranger, Molière, and La Fontaine, and scores of other men whose names and whose worthy labors are as familiar in the remote by-places of civilization as are the historic deeds of kings and princes that sleep in the marble vaults of Saint-Denis. But among the thousands and thousands of tombs in Père Lachaise there is one that no man, no woman, no youth of either sex ever passes by without stopping to examine. Every visitor has a sort of indistinct idea of the history of its dead, and comprehends that homage is due here, but not one in twenty thousand clearly remembers the story of that tomb and its romantic occupants. This is the grave of Abelard and Eloise, a grave which has been more revered, more widely known, more written and sung about, and wept over, for seven hundred years, than any other in Christendom, save only that of the Saviour. All visitors linger pensively about it. All young people capture and carry away keepsakes and mementos of it. All Parisian youths and maidens who are disappointed in love come there to bail out when they are full of tears. Yea, many stricken lovers make pilgrimages to this shrine from distant provinces to weep and wail and grit their teeth over their heavy sorrows, and to purchase the sympathies of the chastened spirits of that tomb with offerings of immortel and budding flowers. Go when you will, you find somebody snuffling over that tomb. Go when you will, you find it furnished with those bouquets, and immortel. Go when you will, you find a gravel train from Marseilles, arriving to supply the deficiencies caused by memento-cabbaging vandals whose affections have miscarried. Yet who really knows the story of Abelard and Eloise? Precious few people. The names are perfectly familiar to everybody, and that is about all. With infinite pains I have acquired a knowledge of that history, and I propose to narrate it here, partly for the honest information of the public, and partly to show that public that they have been wasting a good deal of marketable sentiment very unnecessarily. STORY OF ABELARD AND Eloise. Eloise was born seven hundred and sixty-six years ago. She may have had parents, there is no telling. She lived with her uncle Fulbert, a canon of the Cathedral of Paris. I do not know what a canon of a cathedral is, but that is what he was. He was nothing more than a sort of a mountain howitzer, likely, because they had no heavy artillery in those days. Suffice it, then, that Heloise lived with her uncle, the howitzer, and was happy. She spent the most of her childhood in the convent of Argenteuil. Never heard of Argenteuil before, but suppose there was really such a place. She then returned to her uncle, the old gun, or son of a gun, as the case may be, and he taught her to write and speak Latin, which was the language of literature and polite society at that period. Just at this time, Pierre Abelard, who had already made himself widely famous as a rhetorician, came to found a school of rhetoric in Paris. The originality of his principles, his eloquence, and his great physical strength and beauty created a profound sensation. He saw Heloise, and was captivated by her blooming youth, her beauty, and her charming disposition. He wrote to her. She answered. He wrote again. She answered again. He was now in love. He longed to know her, to speak to her face to face. His school was near Fulbert's house. He asked Fulbert to allow him to call. The good old Swivel saw here a rare opportunity. His niece, whom he so much loved, would absorb knowledge from this man, and it would not cost him a cent. Such was Fulbert, penurious. 
Fulbert's first name is not mentioned by any author, which is unfortunate. However, George W. Fulbert will answer for him as well as any other. We will let him go at that. He asked Abelard to teach her. Abelard was glad enough of the opportunity. He came often and stayed long. A letter of his shows in its very first sentence that he came under that friendly roof like a cold-hearted villain as he was, with the deliberate intention of debauching a confiding innocent girl. This is the letter. I cannot cease to be astonished at the simplicity of Fulbert. I was as much surprised as if he had placed a lamb in the power of a hungry wolf. Eloise and I, under pretext of study, gave ourselves up wholly to love, and the solitude that love seeks our studies procured for us. Books were open before us, but we spoke oftener of love than philosophy, and kisses came more readily from our lips than words. And so, exulting over an honorable confidence which to his degraded instinct was a ludicrous simplicity, this unmanly Abelard seduced the niece of the man whose guest he was. Paris found it out. Fulbert was told of it, told often, but refused to believe it. He could not comprehend how a man could be so depraved as to use the sacred protection and security of hospitality as a means for the commission of such a crime as that. But when he heard the rowdies in the streets singing the love-songs of Abelard to Eloise, the case was too plain. Love-songs come not properly within the teachings of rhetoric and philosophy. He drove Abelard from his house. Abelard returned secretly, and carried Eloise away to Palais, in Brittany, his native country. Here, shortly afterwards, she bore a son, who, from his rare beauty, was surnamed Astrolabe, William G. The girl's flight enraged Fulbert, and he longed for vengeance, but feared to strike lest retaliation visit Eloise, for he still loved her tenderly. At length Abelard offered to marry Eloise, but on a shameful condition, that the marriage should be kept secret from the world, to the end that, while her good name remained a wreck, as before, his priestly reputation might be kept untarnished. It was like that miscreant. Fulbert saw his opportunity and consented. He would see the parties married, and then violate the confidence of the man who had taught him that trick. He would divulge the secret, and so remove somewhat of the obloquy that attached to his niece's fame. But the niece suspected his scheme. She refused the marriage at first. She said Fulbert would betray the secret to save her, and besides, she did not wish to drag down a lover who was so gifted, so honored by the world, and who had such a splendid career before him. It was noble, self-sacrificing love, and characteristic of the pure-souled Eloise, but it was not good sense. But she was overruled, and the private marriage took place. Now for Fulbert. The heart so wounded should be healed at last, the proud spirit so tortured should find rest again, the humbled head should be lifted up once more. He proclaimed the marriage in the high places of the city, and rejoiced that dishonor had departed from his house. But, lo, Abelard denied the marriage. Eloise denied it. The people, knowing the former circumstances, might have believed Fulbert, had only Abelard denied it. But when the person chiefly interested, the girl herself denied it, they laughed, despairing Fulbert to scorn. The poor canon of the cathedral of Paris was spiked again. The last hope of repairing the wrong that had been done his house was gone. What next? Human nature suggested revenge. He compassed it, the historian says. Ruffians hired by Fulbert fell upon Abelard by night, and inflicted upon him a terrible and nameless mutilation. 
I am seeking the last resting place of those ruffians. When I find it, I shall shed some tears on it, and stack up some bouquets and immortelles, and cart away from it some gravel whereby to remember that, howsoever blotched by crime their lives may have been, these ruffians did one just deed, at any rate, albeit it was not warranted by the strict letter of the law. Eloise entered a convent, and gave good-bye to the world and its pleasures for all time. For twelve years she never heard of Abelard, never even heard his name mentioned. She had become prioress of Argenté, and led a life of complete seclusion. She happened one day to see a letter written by him, in which he narrated his own history. She cried over it, and wrote him. He answered, addressing her as his sister in Christ. They continued to correspond, she in the unweighed language of unwavering affection, he in the chilly phraseology of the polished rhetorician. She poured out her heart in passionate, disjointed sentences. He replied with finished essays, divided deliberately into heads and subheads, premises and argument. She showered upon him the tenderest epithets that love could devise. He addressed her from the north pole of his frozen heart as the spouse of Christ. The abandoned villain. On account of her too easy government of her nuns, some disreputable irregularities were discovered among them, and the abbot of Saint-Denis broke up her establishment. Abelard was the official head of the monastery of Saint-Gildas de Ruy at the time, and when he heard of her homeless condition, a sentiment of pity was aroused in his breast. It is a wonder the unfamiliar emotion did not blow his head off and he placed her and her troop in the little oratory of the Paraclete, a religious establishment which he had founded. She had many privations and sufferings to undergo at first, but her worth and her gentle disposition won influential friends for her, and she built up a wealthy and flourishing nunnery. She became a great favorite with the heads of the church, and also the people, though she seldom appeared in public. She rapidly advanced in esteem, in good report, and in usefulness, and Abelard, as rapidly, lost ground. The Pope so honored her that he made her the head of her order. Abelard, a man of splendid talents, and ranking as the first debater of his time, became timid, irresolute, and distrustful of his powers. He only needed a great misfortune to topple him from the high position he held in the world of intellectual excellence, and it came. Urged by kings and princes to meet the subtle Saint-Bernard in debate and crush him, he stood up in the presence of a royal and illustrious assemblage, and when his antagonist had finished, he looked about him and stammered a commencement. But his courage failed him. The cunning of his tongue was gone. With his speech unspoken, he trembled and sat down, a disgraced and vanquished champion. He died a nobody, and was buried at Cluny, A.D. 1144. They removed his body to the paraclete afterward, and when Eloise died twenty years later, they buried her with him, in accordance with her last wish. He died at the ripe age of sixty-four, and she at sixty-three. After the bodies had remained entombed three hundred years, they were removed once more. They were removed again in eighteen hundred, and finally, seventeen years afterward, they were taken up and transferred to Père Lachaise, where they will remain in peace and quiet until it comes time for them to get up and move again. History is silent concerning the last acts of the mountain howitzer. Let the world say what it will about him. I, at least, shall always respect the memory, and sorrow for the abused trust, and the broken heart, and the troubled spirit of the old smooth-bore. 
rest and repose be his. Such is the story of Abelard and Eloise. Such is the history that Lamartine had shed such cataracts of tears over. But that man never could come within the influence of a subject in the least pathetic without overflowing his banks. He ought to be damned, or levied, I should more properly say. Such is the history, not as it is usually told, but as it is when stripped of the nauseous sentimentality that would enshrine for our loving worship a dastardly seducer like Pierre Abelard. I have not a word to say against the misused faithful girl, and would not withhold from her grave a single one of those simple tributes which blighted youths and maidens offer to her memory. But I am sorry enough that I have not time and opportunity to write four or five volumes of my opinion of her friend, the founder of the Parachute, or the Paraclete, or whatever it was. The tons of sentiment I have wasted on that unprincipled humbug in my ignorance. I shall throttle down my emotion hereafter about this sort of people, until I have read them up, and know whether they are entitled to any tearful attentions or not. I wish I had my immortelle back now, and that bunch of radishes. In Paris we often saw in shop-windows the sign, English spoken here, just as one sees in the windows at home the sign, Ici on parle Française. We always invaded these places at once, and invariably received the information, framed in faultless French, that the clerk who did the English for the establishment had just gone to dinner, and should be back in an hour. Would Monsieur buy something? We wondered why those parties happened to take their dinner at such erratic and extraordinary hours, for we never called at a time when an exemplary Christian would be in the least likely to be abroad on such an errand. The truth was, it was a base fraud a snare to trap the unwary, chaff to catch fledglings with. They had no English murdering clerk. They trusted to the sign to inveigle foreigners into their lairs, and trusted to their own blandishments to keep them there till they bought something. We ferreted out another French imposition, a frequent sign to this effect. All manner of American drinks artistically prepared here. We procured the service of a gentleman experienced in the nomenclature of the American bar, and moved upon the works of one of these impostures. A bowing, aproned Frenchman skipped forward and said, Que voulez-vous, les messieurs? I do not know what que voulez-vous, les messieurs, means, but such was his remark. Our general said, We will take a whisky straight. A stare from the Frenchman. Well, if you don't know what that is, give us champagne cocktail. A stare and a shrug. Well, then, give us a sherry cobbler. The Frenchman was checkmated. This was all Greek to him. Give us a brandy smash. The Frenchman began to back away, suspicious of the ominous vigor of the last order, began to back away, shrugging his shoulders and spreading his hands apologetically. The general followed him up and gained a complete victory. The uneducated foreigner could not even furnish a Santa Cruz punch, an eye-opener, a stone fence, or an earthquake. It was plain that he was a wicked impostor. An acquaintance of mine said the other day that he was doubtless the only American visitor to the exposition who had had the high honor of being escorted by the Emperor's bodyguard. I said, with unobtrusive frankness, that I was astonished that such a long-legged, lantern-jawed, unprepossessing-looking specter as he should be singled out for a distinction like that, and asked how it came about. 
He said he had attended a great military review in the Champ de Mars some time ago, and while the multitude about him was growing thicker and thicker every moment, he observed an open space inside the railing. He left his carriage and went into it. He was the only person there, and so he had plenty of room, and the situation being central, he could see all the preparations going on about the field. By and by there was a sound of music, and soon the Emperor of the French and the Emperor of Austria, escorted by the famous Saint Gare, entered the enclosure. They seemed not to observe him, but directly, in response to a sign from the commander of the guard, a young lieutenant came toward him, with a file of his men following, halted, raised his hand, and gave the military salute, and then said in a low voice that he was sorry to have to disturb a stranger and a gentleman, but the place was sacred to royalty. Then this New Jersey phantom rose up and bowed and begged pardon. Then, with the officer beside him, the file of men marching behind him, and with every mark of respect, he was escorted to his carriage by the Imperial Saint-Gare. The officer saluted again and fell back. The New Jersey sprite bowed in return, and had presence of mind enough to pretend that he had simply called on a matter of private business with those emperors, and so waved them an adieu and drove from the field. Imagine a poor Frenchman ignorantly intruding upon a public rostrum sacred to some sixpenny dignitary in America. The police would scare him to death first with a storm of their eloquent blasphemy, and then pull him to pieces, getting him away from there. We are measurably superior to the French in some things, but they are immeasurably our betters in others. Enough of Paris for the present. We have done our whole duty by it. We have seen the Tuileries, the Napoleon Column, the Madeleine, that wonder of wonders the tomb of Napoleon, all the great churches and museums, libraries, imperial palaces, and sculpture and picture galleries, the Pantheon, Jardin des Plantes, the opera, the circus, the legislative body, the billiard-rooms, the barbers, the grisettes. Ah, the grisettes! I had almost forgotten. They are another romantic fraud. They were, if you let the books of travel tell it, always so beautiful, so neat and trim, so graceful, so naive and trusting, so gentle, so winning, so faithful to their shop duties, so irresistible to buyers in their prattling importunity, so devoted to their poverty-stricken students of the Latin quarter, so light-hearted and happy on their Sunday picnics in the suburbs, and, oh, so charmingly, so delightfully immoral. Stuff! For three or four days I was constantly saying— Quick, Ferguson, is that a grisette? And he always said no. He comprehended at last that I wanted to see a grisette, then showed me dozens of them. They were like nearly all the Frenchwomen I ever saw, homely. They had large hands, large feet, large mouths. They had pug-noses as a general thing, and mustaches that not even good breeding could overlook. They combed their hair straight back without parting. They were ill-shaped, they were not winning, they were not graceful. I knew by their looks that they ate garlic and onions, and lastly and finally, to my thinking, it would be base flattery to call them immoral. Aroint thee, wench! I sorrow for the vagabond student of the Latin quarter now, even more than formerly I envied him. Thus topples to earth another idol of my infancy. We have seen everything, and to-morrow we go to Versailles. We shall see Paris only for a little while as we come back to take up our line of march for the ship, and so I may as well bid the beautiful city a regretful farewell. 
we shall travel many thousands of miles after we leave here, and visit many great cities, but we shall find none so enchanting as this. Some of our party have gone to England, intending to take a roundabout course and rejoin the vessel at Leghorn, or Naples, several weeks hence. We came near going to Geneva, but have concluded to return to Marseilles and go up through Italy from Genoa. I will conclude this chapter with a remark that I am sincerely proud to be able to make, and glad as well, that my comrades cordially endorse it, to wit, by far the handsomest women we have seen in France were born and reared in America. I feel now like a man who has redeemed a failing reputation, and shed lustre upon a dim discussion, by a single just deed done at the eleventh hour. Let the curtain fall to slow music. End of chapter 15